Welcome back to the program. Across the country, fracking, the extraction of natural gas by hydraulic fracturing, is being touted as the nation's answer to energy independence. Energy companies have repeatedly assured us that the process is indeed safe. But is there a hidden cost, a hidden danger? What really is the process of fracking, and what are its consequences on people, the environment, and those that come in contact with it? My guests, Michelle Bamberger and Robert Oswald, combine their expertise in a new look at how contamination at drilling sites has translated into ill health and heartbreak for both families and their pets. By giving voice to the people at ground zero of the fracking debate, the authors illustrate what they believe to be the consequences of fracking, which in their view poses a dire threat to the air we breathe, the water we drink, and even our food supply. Michelle Bamberger is a veterinarian and the author of two previous books. Robert Oswald is a professor of molecular medicine at Cornell University, the recipient of Fulbright and Guggenheim Fellowships. They both serve on the advisory board of physicians, scientists, and engineers for health energy. And it is my pleasure to welcome Michelle Bamberger and Robert Oswald here to talk about the real cost of fracking, how America's shale gas boom is threatening our families, pets, and food, Michelle, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Robert, begin with you. and Tell us a little bit about what fracking is. It's one of those things that we think we have a general idea about what it is. We certainly hear a lot about it. Explain what exactly is involved in the process. Okay. I, I think one, what, what you have to do is consider both what hydraulic fracturing is and what the entire process is. Um, hydraulic fracturing is nothing more than cracking apart rocks with high-pressure uh, fluids, wa- water plus certain amounts of chemicals. This has been used in a, in a lot of different things. It's been used in dr- drilling water wells. It's been used for a long, long time. But what we the what we're talking about here, and what everybody refers to as fracking, is actually a relatively new process where. Um, a horizontal well is drilled. In fact, they drill down uh, perhaps a mile, perhaps less, into the ground, turn the bit horizontally, go for another mile or so, and then they fracture the rock. And this requires huge amounts of chemicals and water and sand, etc., and brings up a lot more health issues um, than has been the case in the past with gas drilling. Michelle, talk a little bit about what we've seen as evidence of the impact of this method that Robert is talking about. Right, Jeff. So our um, original study uh, that was published in New Solutions in January of 2012, what what, uh, the major conclusions of that study were with animals were that in both uh, companion animals and food animals, and we had uh, mostly uh, cattle, mostly beef cattle, we also had dairy cattle, we had goats, uh, and chickens. Um, and so the, the major conclusion there um, with both of those sets of animals, companion and food, was um, that re- the uh, system of reproduction was, was uh, impacted. And um, by reproduction, I mean there were many more abortions, stillbirths, failure to breed, and failure to cycle um, that farmers and um, animal owners uh, were noticing in, in their pets as compared to before drilling started. So they really had a timeline that they could see that when it started, 
uh, and when it started, it was really associated with uh, the start of this this process. So that was the major impact. Um, along with the animals, um, we also looked at um, the health impact of, of the owners, and then we saw a certain set of, of symptoms which other researchers have also been seeing in people, and which we have dubbed shale gas syndrome, and that involves headaches and nosebleeds, rashes, uh, gastrointestinal uh, upsets, uh, and, and uh, that, that sort of um, uh, a set of, of symptoms, and those are really acute symptoms. What we're seeing with the animals, what we saw with the animals in that original study with reproduction, uh, was really, um, you know, long, would be longer-term uh, symptoms. We're, we look at animals as sentinels, uh, basically, because they're, they're higher exposure rates and their um, uh, reproductive times are much faster than, than our reproductive times. The generation times are much faster. So they actually serve as sentinels. So that was our um, their made major impact with animals. We certainly saw the other impacts that we saw with humans, but not to that extent that we saw with reproduction. Robert, what are the chemicals that are at play here? What are the chemicals involved, and what is the nexus between those chemicals and the symptoms that Michelle is talking about? Okay, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, we know some of the chemicals that are used. We know um, uh, there are things like the BTEX compounds, benzene, ethylbenzene, xylene, and toluene. There are glycols, something like you might have in antifreeze. Uh, these are the things that are put into the uh, the mixture, the uh, polyacrylamide, various other things, sand. Um, but what's as, as concerning as what's put in is what comes up from the ground, the things like heavy metals, arsenic, strontium, um, and and various other things like that. So what we find, and, and, and let me also polyaromatic hydrocarbons. And some of these compounds have effects on the endocrine system. They're endocrine disruptors. They'll interact with uh, estrogen receptors and androgen receptors, et cetera. And this is where we think the effect of uh, the reproductive effects come into play. Some of these compounds are also potent carcinogens, which may have uh, issues longer term down the road with uh, humans that are exposed. Right, and Jeff, um, I'll just add um, uh, to what Robert said there, uh, at least with the, the respiratory things, it's really easy to follow those symptoms back from the BTEX compounds, uh, respiratory as well as uh, the nosebleeds, because those uh, compounds, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene, uh, as a group do affect um, those symptoms, and we, you know we can we can really see why uh, those those sorts of symptoms occur. But with the reproductive stuff, um, you know there was the Theo Colborn study that came out and said that you know of the chemicals that we do know about, that a good percentage of them, such 40% is the number that I'm, I'm bringing up in my head right now, um, are potentially endocrine disrupting chemicals. And that's really major, and it, for two reasons. One is that uh, that's a pretty large percentage. Percentage, and the second thing is those are only the chemicals that we know of. There's still many uh, chemicals or proprietary blends. We don't know all the components of them, um, so there may be even more, maybe even a larger percentage. And those chemicals, I think, as Robert just mentioned, they can work um, at very, very low, low levels, much below uh, the levels that we think, uh, in general, cause might may cause health effects. And, and I think that that's what is, is truly concerning about. Um, what our, our work has uh, brought up. Are we seeing a certain universality in this? Are we seeing some level of these symptoms and these issues 
in in virtually every instance of this hydraulic fracking where it's taking place? I don't. I don't think we can say that. I mean, what what we've done is do so far is to do case studies where we study a, a, a few cases in detail. This is something that's often done in the medical literature. Uh, what that doesn't give us is prevalence. We don't really know, you know, how common this is. I mean, really all we have to go on at this point is, you know, discussions that, you know, we've had in the, with people in the field who say it's fairly common. We don't have the actual numbers on that yet. Right, and that's what I, I was going to say. He beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> What do we need to do? What research needs to take place to get a more affirmative grip on exactly what's taking place? Michelle? Um, right. So, uh, Jeff, I'm, I'll, I'll share this uh, time with Robert on this question, too. Um, but one thing that we've uh, been thinking a lot about is testing uh, and how to go about testing uh, so that uh, the people out there in the field uh, could know, uh, well, is my water, um, uh, uh, should, should I spend a lot more money later on and test it, or, you know, is what, what's, a, what's a sort of initial test that I can do that can, that can lead me to that? Uh, and secondly is try to determine what the maximum contaminant levels are, which we're hoping the federal government will pick up on. Go ahead, Robert. I, I think we really need to know what people are exposed to uh, and what animals are exposed to and subsequently what, you know, how much of these chemicals show up in our food supply. Um, it's a hard problem to get at because there's, you know, there's so many chemicals involved in this process. And part of the problem is that they change with time. So you can imagine if you're... Uh, trying to measure the amount of a particular chemical in air and the wind is blowing in one direction one day, another direction the other day, things can change dramatically. So what we need to know more about is what is the exposure of people over time? Uh, you know, how much do they get over, you know, a period of a month or so? And there are some people trying to get at that now, and I think those are extremely important studies. We need to know that both for air, water, even soil and some some cases, and we need to know more about exactly what compounds we need to worry about. What are the, which ones are there in the highest concentrations? Which are the most toxic ones that are there, et cetera? Um, and one more thing, I'll add, Jeff, too, on on uh, that vein that uh, Robert uh, brought up is, um, you know, not only what the chemicals are, but what are the interactions between the chemicals mm -hmm. as they're mixed, because we've got mixtures of um, fluids, drilling fluids, and fracturing fluids. It's not just one chemical that, that's acting. So what happens when you mix a bunch of chemicals together? And then what happens with that mixture when it's um, below ground where you've got uh, pressure differences, differences and temperature differences? That's like, you know, a chemistry experiment, really. And we don't know really what happens in those situations. And I think that these are all red flags and data gaps that we need to fill in and know before we can really say, sure, okay, this is safe or this is not safe. What are we hearing, this is for either one of you, what are we hearing from the energy companies when they are confronted with these situations and, and this information? Well, the general, I mean, uh, I, I can't really speak for them in, because they, you know, obviously it's a, it's a lot of different companies that have a lot of different reactions and then they have their trade groups that have reactions. Generally, they send their trade groups out to... Um, to respond to these studies, and it, it, you know, 
the point is it's general they generally try to discredit anybody who has a point of view that's different from theirs they try to discredit the science in every way they possibly can they cast doubt on it they try to discredit the reputations of people who are bringing or who are doing the science so you know that's what they're paid to do so that's what they do we don't worry about it too much except that to the extent that the public is hearing both sides of this. I mean, there there is a, a debate going on about it, and the arguments on the other side are relevant in terms of the information that has to be presented to present the, the opposite side. Yes, I mean, that's true, and that's one of the difficulties. Um, you, have to, you have to realize that it's a large industry with deep pockets with a huge advertising budget. Um, one of the things that they complain about is that there are some small foundations that are are putting out a, a message that's somewhat different from theirs, and and the fact that the those small foundations and all in researchers who have worked on subjects that they don't particularly agree with, they complain that they're that we've actually gotten some traction, that actually people are starting to sit up and and listen to this, and. I think the debate is, has to continue. I think we, you know, they have to put their ideas out there. We have to put our ideas out there. I'm, I'm hoping that the public will try to evaluate that and do the best they can to figure out who's right. What are we seeing in terms of the distance from these fracking sites? How far some of these impacts are going? Um, so with our study, uh, our studies, uh, Jeff, um, all of our cases were within two miles. That's not to say that there aren't impacts uh, outside of that, especially related to the air. Um, we started off, when we started studying this issue, we were really concentrate, concentrated on the water exposures, especially wastewater and hydraulic fracturing fluid uh, exposures, as well as uh, tainted, uh, contaminated drinking water. However, we, we really uh, quickly um, re- realized that it's also air air contamination, and as one of our, um, in one of our uh, chapters, uh, someone points out, you know, we can, um, we can uh, change our water supply. We're lucky we've got a water buffalo and bottled water supply, but we can't change our air. We can't stay in our house, um, you know, all day and, and clo- with closed windows and expect that we're going to be okay. We, we just can't, you can't live like that. So I think the air, um, you know, the air contamination has become um, you know, really big, and um, that's going to be an important uh, thing to study, too. Are there any impacts from the fracking itself? A lot of concern gets focused not on some of these effects that we've been talking about, but just on the process of, of the hydraulic fracturing itself, as you talked about it before, Robert. Right. Um, okay, when, when one generally says fracking, which when you hear that in the popular press, it usually refers to the entire process, and that's, that is, of course, an issue. Um, but what the industry likes to concentrate on is actually just the hydraulic fracturing process that, that occurs far down below the ground, and they say it's protected from the aquifers by impervious uh, layers of rock, etc., um, that may or may not be correct. There are some studies suggesting that uh, hydraulic fracturing fluids and maybe and certainly methane can migrate up to to the aquifers. Um, 
The time scale at which that occurs is not particularly clear at this point. Um, the other issues are, you know, in some cases, and particularly things like uh, whole bed methane um, extraction, the hydraulic fracturing occurs at a fairly shallow level, fairly near the aquifer. And in those cases, it, it's, it can be uh, it, certainly um, possible to contaminate aquifers directly from the fracking process. Um, if drilling occurs in some areas of New York where we know lands, lands are leased, uh, the shale areas is fairly shallow and it certainly could contact the aquifer in that case. Yeah, I guess the other thing I would add on this, um, Jeff, are uh, the presence of abandoned um, wells that could act as a conduit um, uh, after fracturing. They hit an abandoned well and it goes, that may lead to the aquifer. Um, and also natural, uh, naturally occurring fractures, and then also fracking up and uh, hitting another well and having fluids uh, spout through that well and also cause contamination through that particular well. So um, there are all kinds of um, different connections, all depending upon, as Robert said, you know, the formation, the level, depth of the formation, and then also you know, what's around it geologically. Michelle, talk about what you're seeing in terms of the impact on farms and animals on farms. Right. So, again, that um, the first study that we did, Jeff, really showed that there were a lot of uh, reproductive uh, uh, problems. As we show in our book, though, it really, um, when you talk about impacts on farms, you've got to look at, you know, farmers also grow hay, uh, they grow their grains, they have to have good land. And, and several of our stories, um, you know, you read that and you walk away thinking, wow, I thought this was just about animals, but it's really about, also about, um, you know, the farmland has to be maintained in order to grow these grains and haze, and in order to grow, have healthy animals, you've got to have good water, you've got to have uh, good air. So, you know, in addition to all the health impacts directly, direct health impacts, you've got all these other issues um, where farmers may lose farmland because it hasn't been remediated uh, properly or things haven't been, stones and um, debris have been left behind, the fields haven't been cleared, and the farmer uh, doesn't have the time or the um, uh, finances to go ahead and clean up after the drillers. And if the farmers aren't compensated, then they'll, they start, they just don't produce on those hay fields. So, um, you know, the farming impacts are, really a lot more than I ever expected when I went in. Again, I thought it was just going to be health stuff, but it's, it's, it's really a lot of stuff. It, and it's not even including, as one farmer told us, um, you know, they put all these roads in, they take away farmland from us. They have to have access roads. And the access roads uh, can be quite a, a bit of the farmland, all depending upon how many wells are, are drilled on the land. Is there, in your view, a safe way that hydraulic fracturing can be done without some of these impacts that we've been talking about? It, it certainly would be nice, um, but we don't we don't know of that uh, how that would be done at this point. We, uh, you know, it's an industrial process. Um, it's always subject to some possible accidents. They're they're using. Uh, very high pressure. It's there's always some unknowns about um, you know what's happening underground, etc. So there's always that potential for uh, you know catastrophic failure. Um, so I don't think it, it one could be assured that there could never be 
a problem. There could all, there are, there will always be that potential for a problem. At this point, however, you know, we're so far from optimal that you know we can. There's a long way that that you know we can be taken. Particularly looking at uh, a state like Pennsylvania, where the re- regulations are fairly lax and the enforcement of the regulations are even worse. Um, they realized, I mean, there's the report that came out recently saying, you know, how um, rather bad the uh, enforcement in Pennsylvania has been over the last last few years. Uh, in, in the case of the proposals in New York that we know very, a lot about, um, it, it's potentially even worse than Pennsylvania. So, so when it's done, it needs to be regulated tightly, but most importantly, the enforcement of the regulation has to be rigorous. And, and, and I can tell you that from our experience, that's, I can't think of any, any state or country where that's the case. Um, yeah, Jeff. So I'll just add that, um, you know, I think that we have to step back to what we said earlier, that when people start talking about can it be done safely, I think first before we get to that point, we have to say, uh, can it, should it be done? Uh, after we answer all these questions, first we have to answer the questions of, you know, what are, uh, what are the health, what's the health impact assessment for, for people and for animals? And then what are, what is the answer to all these, these red flags and the, these data gaps about what are the chemicals, um, what are their interactions, what are the maximum contaminant levels or effective screening levels for these uh, contaminants in water and air um, before we can start to address health issues, just health issues. Uh, and then we move into what Robert talked about um, with um, regulators and inspectors and, 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 and whatnot. Um, you know, there's so many different questions that have to be answered. We really believe that's the thing to do now is to see all these red flags and stop. When you see red flags uh, being waved in front of you, you don't go faster and, and go over the cliff. You stop. You stop, you take a look around, you figure out what's going on before moving forward. So that's what we're, that's what we're in favor of. Michelle Bamberger, Robert Oswald. The book is The Real Cost of Fracking, How America's Shale Gas Boom is Threatening Our Families, Pets, and Food. It's just published by Beacon. Michelle, Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 